When you think of industrial furnaces, you may think of the late 19th or early 20th centuries and places like Baltimore, Buffalo, and Pittsburgh. But the history of American industry goes back much further, and one of the earliest industrial sites in Maryland is located in the foothills of Frederick County at the Catoctin Furnace. Today's guest, Elizabeth Comer, a professional archaeologist, is a member of the board of the Catoctin Furnace Historical Society, an organization dedicated to preserving and interpreting this unique story. Make sure you have your blast shields down. We're headed into the furnace on this week's PreserveCast. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. Before we start this week's episode, I really want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask for your help. PreserveCast is powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization that depends on member contributions to fund its work. This podcast receives no government support and currently has no major funder support. Its budget is entirely dependent on listener contributions. I'm hoping you'll consider making a quick gift to help support this podcast, which is bringing important preservation stories to thousands of listeners around the country. Think of us as your preservation Netflix. Any amount helps, and you can make a quick online donation by going to PreserveCast.org and clicking the Donate Now button in the upper right-hand corner. We'd greatly appreciate it. Now, let's get preserving. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're joined in studio by Elizabeth Comer, who is a trained archaeologist with nearly 40 years of experience in the field, 28 of which has been with her own company as a sole proprietor. She's completed more than 250 archaeology projects, including historic, prehistoric, civil war, urban, maritime, underwater, African-American, and more. She spent four years as the director of the Baltimore Center for Urban Archaeology and has completed dozens of projects within the city. In addition, she's an active board member with the Catoctin Furnace Historical Society, where her experience with archaeology, architecture, and history is helping to breathe new life into this unique historic site. Elizabeth, it is a pleasure to have you with us here today on PreserveCast. Thank you, Nick. So what an interesting career. So many cool things that you've worked on. Um, We love to get to know people before we start talking about what they're working on and the projects that they're working on. Where did the love of history come from? The love of history came from just, I'm going to say the cradle. I, I know I was in an 18th century cradle as an infant, so it must have just started there. I grew up on a farm in Frederick County, and on that farm next to the Little Hunting Creek was a prehistoric Indian site. And my parents were uh, very interested in history. We would walk the fields. Um, I've recorded the site that's on the farm. The the house that I grew up in was um, built uh, during the Revolution, and uh, just every part of my being was, you know, seeped in history and archaeology. I remember sitting on the floor as a probably a five or six year old looking at National Geographic and specifically looking at an underwater find and thinking, well, I'm going to be an archaeologist and I never changed my mind. So, I mean, some people like fall into this kind of stuff where they kind of like find it as a second career. We've talked to people like that. Um, But it seems like literally it was it was sort of preordained, like you were to become an archaeologist. Now, were your parents, did they work in the field? Did they study it? I mean, obviously they had a passion for it, but... 
they did have a passion for it. My mother grew up in a home that actually was used uh, during the Battle of Antietam uh, for McClellan's. He stayed there before the battle. Hmm. Um, there, It was a home that her family had lived in for 200 years at that point, and, and the family still lives there. So it just, and my father was from way southwestern Virginia, again, grew up in a historic home. Everything around us, we never, we always joked there was never anything comfortable to sit on in my home uh, as a child. We didn't have sofas, like, you know, comfortable. Right. Like my yeah. friends all had, you had like Barco a loungers. Exactly. It's like, no, let's be comfortable. No. And we also didn't even have a TV most of the time I was growing up. So it was really kind of very much uh, a household in which we discussed history. We lived it. My parents were very involved in it. They were not historians or archaeologists, but that's all we did on Sunday afternoon was go to historic sites. And so where'd you go to school? I went to the public schools in Frederick County. And then as a very young um, graduate, like pre-graduate, if you will, I didn't go to my senior year of high school. I went to Hood, which was right around the corner, which was a great place Mm -hmm. for me. Um, Ended up then spending a year at the University of London and uh, received a master's degree from the University of Kansas and am ABD and actually writing my dissertation um, at the University of Maryland in, in American Studies. Okay. And then where's, where's your first job in the field? So you have this passion, you get the degree, and you do what? Even before the degree, at Hood, and I give them a huge credit for this, just down the street, Rosemont Avenue, was Schifferstadt. And this was in, uh, in the 1970s, and there was an excavation taking place in the basement of Schifferstadt. And this is in so, Frederick, Maryland. In Frederick, Maryland. Mm-hmm. And my very first archaeological fieldwork was in the basement of Schifferstadt. And it was fascinating because with every trowel, there were you know 18th and 19th century domestic artifacts popping up, as well as um, nails and window glass and just all kinds of wonderful things. It was a fabulous uh, way to be introduced. And then uh, going on, uh, I really specialized in historical archaeology, although I do both, um, both prehistoric and historic. And so first job out of the field, though, back to that point, first full-time thing, what were you doing? When I got my master's degree, um, I immediately began working for a company called Soil Systems out of Chicago. And we were doing the archaeology for the Wilmington um, uh, railway station, basically, in Wilmington, Delaware. So I moved to Wilmington, and then after just a couple months, an opportunity um, presented itself with the Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority, WMATA, because, uh, believe it or not, that was the beginnings of the... um, uh, of the metro system just you know getting underway. So I moved to Washington, opened an office for the company in Washington, and began doing the archaeology for the Green Line and the um, uh, Branch Avenue and everything to the east, basically, of the Anacostia. Wow. And one of the, my very first project in D.C., we were at, at Howard Road on the east side of the Anacostia. And I was doing archaeology the way I thought it should be done, which was soup to nuts, talk to the people who are still there, do the above ground archaeology, which 
really a lot of people call it architectural history, of course, but it's all part of the landscape. So I realized that these houses were uh, just had been built just after the um, Civil War, and they were shotgun houses, and they were still on site. Unfortunately, they're gone now, but right. I. Um, they were determined eligible for the nat- listing on the National Register, and it was just a fabulous project, the Howard Road. Uh, but it, it showed me that in even in an urban area, there's something there you don't even expect. It's an amazing uh, process of discovery. What a cool project to work on, and, and huge. I mean, in scope and magnitude, and I mean, just miles and miles and miles of massive tunneling. So yes. A lot of a lot of damage done too, I guess. Um so you've obviously you've you know, we mentioned it in your bio, you've done a lot of archaeology work and professionally that is what you still do to this day as a sole proprietor and own a company and do work all across the country. But you also have a passion for a specific place that we really want to dig into and and, and pardon the archaeological pun, um, and talk a little bit about, which is Catoctin Furnace. Yes. So what is Catoctin Furnace first, and why do you care so much about it? Catoctin Furnace is a historic village in Frederick County, Maryland. Um, it's about an hour west of Washington and an hour west of Baltimore, just north of Frederick. It's right at the toes, of, as I call it, of the Catoctin Mountains, of the Appalachians. And it's a village that um, began uh, to grow before the revolution, when it was discovered that four very important components that are needed to make iron were right there, all of them. There was a great deal of um, timber on the mountains, uh, good hardwood for making charcoal. There were beautiful little streams flowing off the mountain for water power. There was hematite in the uh, outcroppings and just, just below the surface again, where the Appalachians end um, at the village, uh, and that's the iron ore that's needed for um, making iron. And then the fourth and final component, limestone, was also available in outcroppings all along the toe of the mountains. So in surveying, people like the Johnsons, uh, who were the first owners, uh, realized that this was, a, this was a very valuable area. And so they began to plan for an iron furnace. Um, We were ramping up to the revolution. Uh, It was clear, I suppose, to them that maybe they were determined to be successful, but we weren't going to be able to depend on England, uh, which we had been been, uh, depending on, for finished iron goods. Um, I mean, the raw iron was coming from from the colonies, but they were sending it to England and then having to buy back um, seems very unfair. But anyway, mm-hmm. buy back the finished products. So they um, realized that this was um, a real commercial opportunity. And that is how Catoctin Furnace began. Up and running just uh, a few weeks after the Declaration of Independence in 1776, um, orders were placed immediately by uh, the Continental Congress for kettles and salt pans and uh, swivels, uh, cannon, uh, cannonballs, shells, uh, everything that was needed for um, the army. And Catoctin began uh, making those things and supplying them. So we operated right up through 
uh, the 19th century with changes as new technologies came in and, and there were new improvements. But then in, um, at the end of the 19th century, the new process, the Bessemer steel, we never made steel. And that process began in um, Pennsylvania. And once that did, and Catoctin just didn't have the, you know, the wherewithal to modernize and become the Bethlehem steel or the Johnstown of um, the early 20th century, the village really sort of went um, into, um, you know, a hiatus as far as a, a, a true industrial site. Um, and that's, that's, in a nutshell, the history of the industrial development of Catoctin. So obviously a really cool place. I've been there. It is fascinating. But you've worked at a lot of cool places. You've delved into a lot of interesting history. Why Catoctin Furnace for you? Well, Catoctin Furnace for me is um, it's a complicated answer. First of all, um, as a child, I went to, I attended the Episcopal Church that's there in the village. And I also grew up with my parents uh, becoming very involved in the preservation of the village. So in a nutshell, what happened was uh, a plan for the expansion of the Catoctin Mountain Highway, which connects you know, Baltimore and Washington and then Frederick with Pennsylvania. And that had been a small um, road known now as Catoctin Furnace Road or Route 806. And it was clear that a bigger road was needed. There was a lot of truck traffic, and this was in the early 19, late 1950s, actually, and early 1960s. So the um, State Highway Administration began planning, and one of the plans would, would have gone right through this village, and it would have um, taken out, destroyed, whatever you want to, word you want to use, the iron furnace, the, the ruins of it, and it would have been a real tragedy. So in steps the Historic Preservation Act of 1966, um, because when these plans really were coming to fruition was in the 1970s. But there was also this big national sort of emphasis on the bicentennial. So these it's like the perfect storm. You've got a uh, need for more roads. Uh, you've got this commemoration coming up of our 200-year anniversary of, um, or commemoration of our independence. And then you have um, a group of people who realize that they can, with the Historic Preservation Act of 1966, make a difference in the preservation of a community. So my parents started the Catoctin Furnace Historical Society along with three other uh, couples, and they successfully uh, lobbied to have the road moved, and there were a great deal of um, studies, and those are sort of the next chapter. The village was saved, and then out of that salvation came a great deal of information that has really given us a much broader view of the history of the village. And it's, it's a unique place, and you've recently done you're, you're doing, you know, a lot of interesting archaeology out there, reconstruction of facial features and understanding the different ethnicities that were on site. Tell us a little bit about, I mean, people sort of think maybe Western Maryland, just a bunch of, you know, poor Irish, German, Scots-Irish white folk out there, but not exactly that. There's some different folks out there. 
Right. And that's exactly what this, um, the archaeology that took place for the construct in, in advance of the construction of Route 15 uh, that I was mentioning earlier, it revealed that there, there was an African-American cemetery at Catoctin. And through excavations that took place and the reanalysis of the um, individuals that were in that cemetery, we now know that they're all African-American. They are an indication, as is our historical research, of the initial workers at Catoctin. They were primarily African-American enslaved. There were also some, there's, there are indications there were some free um, blacks as well. Um, but these were the first workers before the generations that came in uh, in the mid-19th century. So their story is the story of uh, having been brought to America, um, having to work. We see in their skeletal remains evidence of overwork, which was uh, something that uh, occurred in iron furnaces where you could work your time, but then you could work more time. And the result of that is shown physically in their bones. Part of the impetus for that would be to gain your freedom through having some extra cash that you could then buy your freedom with, but it meant that you worked, well, all the time. Wow. So you're doing a lot of, speaking of work, your guys, the, the society is doing a lot of work there as well, and a lot of projects going on, and you have been using an interesting model that I think, I know Preservation Maryland is about to recognize the society for this unique model that you've created with a local school. Um, to do trades work on site and train young adults in historic trades. Tell us a little bit about that partnership, who you're working with, and sort of just how it came together and what it, what it does. It's a really interesting project uh, or program called uh, the Catoctin Furnace Historic Building Trades Program. And I, as I've traveled um, and worked with um, historic preservation projects in other countries, I realized that uh, there was some fabulous models for training young people to be plasterers and plumbers and uh, 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 masons and and craftspeople. And we just didn't really have that. And as we began to um, work on restoration of some of the structures at Catoctin, I realized that as important as the restoration was the process and the people involved in the process. So Silver Oak Academy, our partner school, is a residential school in Kemar, which is about a 20-minute drive away. These are young men uh, that have been brought to this school and have decided to uh, turn their lives around after having a situation in which they come into the juvenile justice program or system. And we are teaching them hands-on uh, crafts or hands-on uh, skills, uh, as I said earlier, plumbing, woodworking, masonry. Um, I was just at Catoctin Furnace yesterday, and they're doing a beautiful job of restoring a ceiling that had been damaged um, through a leak some years ago. And uh, they're making fabulous progress, and they're learning um, every day how to do that. Well, our goal is to get them uh, to have some familiarity with all these different sorts of skills, and then uh, to 
help them find a job as they come out of Silver Oak in which they can learn this skill and become, um, you know, either a lifelong job or even just knowing how to repair or work on a historic home where they live or where a family member lives. And so how long has it been going on and how many young adults have gone through it. Do you have any sense? So we're in our seventh year now, and Silver Oak has kept the, and as have we, the numbers small so that it can be very much hands-on. So at any given time, there are probably four or five or six individuals in each of the work crews. So over those years, we've had, um, well, about 45 people, uh, 45 young people that have gone, uh, that have been part of the program. And it's really, I mean, it's it's changing sort of lives and sort of perspectives on things. And at the other other side of it is actually getting work done. So, I mean, what kind of do you have any examples or anything? I mean, you mentioned the the ceiling and stuff like that, but is there anything that you look at on site and say, "Wow, that's really fantastic," and that they had a hand in it? Oh, absolutely. And as a matter of fact, we there one of the first things that they did was start to build historically accurate picket fences around our houses because this is what was there. And we know that from photographs and descriptions and so forth, and from archaeology. So one of our students, one of the first um, years, said, "I'm." going to come back and show my family, my, maybe even my children, I built this, I did this. And so that's the sort of thing that, that really gives a sense of ownership. We have a student who actually grew up less than a mile from Catoctin Furnace, and he's now one of our um, uh, the students in the program. And he didn't really know anything about the history of the furnace, but now he feels like it's He's really part of it. Um, so it's a real sense of, of ownership and a real sense of connection with the past, a physical connection, not just visiting, but actually working on it and saying, I can do this, I did this, I accomplished this, this is a product that I made and, and worked on that I can feel proud of. So obviously the students are doing a lot of work, but there's some projects that are so big that even they're kind of beyond the scale of the students. What are the current projects that are going on there? What should people know about about what's coming at, at Catoctin Furnace and what you guys are, are trying to accomplish in, in sort of a larger sense on site? One of the most exciting projects that we have is our joint um, research project with the Smithsonian um, and the Harvard um, Reich Laboratory and Studio Ice in Brooklyn. We are, um, Studio Ice is making forensic facial reconstructions of two of our African-American population from the, from the cemetery. One is a 15-year-old young man, um, and one is a 30, approximately 30-year-old 30 mother. The young man um, has, his vertebrae is already, um, even at that very, very young age, is already compressed from hard, hard, hard work. There's also, we have evidence of uh, diet and smallpox um, uh, epidemics. We have um, just a great deal of evidence that we're bringing together that will be in this forensic facial uh, reconstruction and interpretation. The mother is buried, um, and just above her in a separate coffin, however, was an infant approximately 
possibly as much as six months old. And she has another child also in the cemetery. Uh, she, again, her bones indicate very hard work. One of the things that we're doing with Harvard, they're sequencing the human genome of 29 of the individuals. That's the full population for which they could get a usable sample of DNA. And our goal through our DNA research is not only to connect these individuals back to places in Africa where they may have been brought from, but also to reconnect with their descendant community. One of the real tragedies of slavery at Catoctin is, is really writ large because we have no descendant community. No one can come forward at this point and say, my ancestors made these shells that were used so during the revolution. So there's no one that you currently know? We do not. We have recently been in contact with an individual in Florida who believes that she is descended from, from an individual that then was not one of the earlier population. We can't trace them quite that far, but they went up into the mountain and started a mulatto school in the 1880s on Catoctin Furnace land. But this but genome work could potentially the connect The genome you. work and is exactly what we are hoping to be able to do to really produce the data that will connect through 23andMe and other uh, DNA um, services with a descendant community. In the meantime, we're looking at the African-American population um, as basically a fictive uh, descendant community and through our interpretations. But we obviously want to be able to connect individually, um, if possible, to families so that they can uh, see what their ancestors were able uh, to do, albeit enslaved, at, at Catoctin. So if someone wants to come and visit, they want to see this kind of stuff, they want to hear more about this, they want to engage with the site, when can you visit? How do you learn more? How do you get to come out? Do you have any events coming up? Let us know. We do have events coming up, but we also are always available for um, tours uh, if you call. We have a tour today, for instance. Someone called and said, we'd like to come, and, and so we have volunteers that can give a tour. And it's a very vibrant place. We're replacing a roof uh, on the Museum of the Ironworker today, so there's a lot going on. Um, and that's pretty much true of any day that you come. It might not be the same as the day before, but there's always something to see. We have a very big event we're incredibly excited about on May 18th and 19th. It's the Maryland Iron Festival. And from 10 to 5 both days, we will be um, uh, giving tours of the village. We have a program uh, called Ancestor's Breath, which will be a poetry and performance about the enslaved at Catoctin uh, that Elaine Bond Heyman is portraying and, and putting on. Uh, we're going to have anvil lifting contests, mm. cannonball throwing or cannonball tossing, I should say. Um, How is your cannonball arm? Um, I actually picked up these. These are very heavy. I'm uh -huh. just going to tell you. How far did so you get So this it? is a, not very far. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but we also have, um, for those who don't want to uh, pick up and toss something as heavy as a cannonball, we have the cat 
Hopfer Catapult, which is much lighter. Um, it's a game we made up based on a historic game of quoits, which we think was played in Catoctin. So we've just kind of twisted that a little to uh, so that you aim into the mouth of the furnace, uh, which is drawn on a, on a piece of canvas. So a lot of fun. We'll have vendors. We're going to have historic food. We'll have a wine and beer tent. Um, as I said earlier, we're going to have programs and then uh, lots of kids' activities. We make handkerchief dolls. We make punch tin ornaments. You'll be able to see what's going on in the historic gardens. Um, just lots going on. So, and uh, if people the want Maryland to find Iron out Festival. the Maryland Iron Festival, May 18th and 19th, 2019. And where do you get all the details if they want to see this, find out how to get there, buy tickets, all that kind of stuff? Where do you find it? It's www.catoctinfurnace.com. Dot org and you just click on Maryland Iron Festival. And there are things, like even on Sunday, we're going to have, you can make a basket. Um, so there's just lots of things going on. So check it out on our website. And if someone wants to learn more about you or they have an archaeology project and they need an archaeologist, where do they find you? Well, I'm at www.eac, which are my initials, Elizabeth Anderson Comer, archaeology.com. Um, and uh, my, my website actually focuses a lot on my public archaeology sort of uh, love, which is what I, um, I try to do in each and every excavation when it's possible, involve the public, get the public to be part of the discovery process of archaeology. Um, it's really all about the process more than the artifacts in my mind. Well, that is a, a fantastic place to leave it. What a great story, um, and what a fantastic place. Um, and we appreciate all the great work that you're doing. Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.